We'll be reading from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph, and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. I um, am on, on something of a crusade, a quest. I'm on a quest to find a nativity scene that depicts the Holy Family as people who smelled as people who had flies buzzing around them and who were dirty. I'm on a crusade to find a nativity scene that depicts angels as terrifying and shepherds as people that you might want to avoid eye contact with or who you might assume were on some terrorist watch list somewhere. I'm on a crusade to find this kind of nativity because it is precisely the scene that Luke has just described for us, a scene where the people and events have been sanitized almost beyond historical recognition. The stable, for instance, is in Bethlehem, which we still see the lie instead of the chaotic mess full of angry and overtaxed people that it was. The stable looks comfortable, like a, you know, a Hampton Inn or Fairfield Inn. Uh, it looks like the kind of barn that people might envision um, who have grown up in the suburbs and never actually spent a lot of time around a barn. Typical Christ Christmas depictions of Mary and Joseph betray them without a trace of their Middle Eastern bloodline showing. 
and in clothes that are clean and untattered. Angels are portrayed as plump, childlike cherubs or GQ male models or your typical Johnson County soccer mom. And yet the uniform response when these angels appear is to tell the terrified people, no wait, don't be scared of me. And shepherds are always portrayed as the kind of people you'd never really have to keep your eye on. Typical nativities are, in other words, filled with scenes and with people that attract us, that draw us in, that make us feel safe and want to be actually a part. But that's not what Luke shows us. Luke shows us a scene full of people that we'd rather avoid and filled with people that we'd probably ignore. I'm looking for what Luke shows us, in other words. I'm looking for an unassuming nativity, one that might be overlooked. The reason is because an unassuming nativity actually shows us best God's pathway to mercy in our world and in our lives. So let's reflect for a little bit on the unassuming mercy that God shows us at Christmas through the scene that Luke has just painted for us. First, let's behold together the unassuming path of mercy. And it really just, you know, begins with Bethlehem. If we start a, a bird's eye view of things, uh, as we look at this scene, we, we allow our gaze to fall on Bethlehem and scripture itself kind of proclaims how ordinary it was. Micah, the prophet in the Old Testament, Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. In other words, Micah is saying, You would not believe what I'm about to do in this backwater place called Bethlehem. In my home county of Cherokee County, Oklahoma, which, by the way, if you're a classic country fan, makes an appearance in the first line of the classic song, You're the Reason God Made Oklahoma. I digress, but you need to listen to that. In my home county in Oklahoma, there's a little town called Holbert. And it was just the butt of an endless stream of jokes about its general worthlessness. My dad used to tell a joke every spring, it seemed like, that a tornado had devastated downtown Holbert, and it took three days for anybody to be able to tell the difference. Now, you probably have a, a town in your home county like that. It may be your hometown. If you do, then you have your Holbert. You have your Bethlehem, completely unassuming, Totally easy to ignore, easy to make fun of, but it was God's path to mercy in our world 2,000 years ago. Now, let's just stay up above Bethlehem for just a moment, and let's just notice how unusually chaotic, and let's just say it outright, how angry it is. Roman occupiers wanted more money from these perpetually penniless people so that everyone had been required to travel to their ancestral birth town to be counted so that the emperor could shake them down for a little bit more. And the path of God's mercy ran through this seething, angry cauldron of humanity. 
All right, so now let's drop down to roof level. And let's alight on the eaves of the stable. Actually, all of us probably picture it as a separate building. But that is to assume a wealth that the residents of Bethlehem in all likelihood did not have. Multiple buildings communicates wealth. They didn't have it. If you've ever been to an impoverished country, you understand this simple truth. Poor people live with their livestock. I have been in homes in Peru that had nothing more than a mud floor sharing Jesus to be interrupted by chickens running through or goats running through. When Julie and I went to China in 2006, all of the little villages that we visited had two-story homes. You think, well, that's great, two-story homes. But here's the deal. The family lived on the second story. The livestock lived on the first floor. And if you've ever been around a farm, aromas rise. So no one is staying at the Waldorf here. But Mary and Joseph are bedding down in the filth. They're living with the livestock. And without benefit of Luke 2, we might pity a situation that would see a child have to be born in those circumstances. And yet that was God's path to the world through that that filth. Now let's zero in on the infant himself. It may shock you to know that in pre-modern cultures, one in four children died before their first birthday. Those that did live, only half made it to adulthood. So in order for humanity to be perpetuated, families had to have children in bulk. They had to have a lot of kids because they knew not all those kids would make it to have families of their own. So had we been the first century owners of that stable, we would have only had the slimmest of hope that that child would even live to its first birthday and even slimmer hope that that child would live to be an adult and an absolutely non-existent thought that that child would end up changing the world. And yet this unassuming infant in this unassuming place, in this unassuming town, was the means, was the pathway of God's mercy to this world. We live in a season right now of gift giving and receiving, and depending upon whom you are married to, uh, a season of hiding and seeking. And one of the things that uh, you must do to really hide uh, something, to keep a gift seeker at bay, is to hide the gift in a place where no one would think to look. If you knew that there was a gift of God's plan, God's mercy to change the world, you couldn't think of a better hiding place than Bethlehem, and a barn, and a baby. And yet, that was God's path to mercy. Behold the unassuming path of mercy. But now let's just zero in and behold the unassuming people of, of mercy. Mary and Joseph were paupers, living in a vassal state, held hostage by the imperious burdens of a king who would ultimately demand to be treated and thought of as a god. 
they were extraordinarily poor. I'm not overselling it. If you're here Christmas Eve, you'll get the rest of the story of Luke 2, the part that we skip. And you will see that they offer, as I mentioned last week, an offering at the dedication of Christ in the temple that was allowed by the Old Testament only for those who were extraordinarily poor. They likely had one threadbare item of clothing, as most people did. In fact, there are hints, even in Scripture, in the language, that there was a class of unclothed people that lived. They just did not have any clothing. Mary and Joseph just had something threadbare. It was the only thing they had. They were dirty. They probably smelled like every other poor person around them. Poverty, if you've ever encountered abject poverty, has a smell. And that would have been in your nose had you met Mary and Joseph. There is no way to imagine a more powerless couple than these two. And yet remember Mary's words of praise to God when visiting her husband or visiting her cousin Elizabeth. She says, God has blessed me. God has done mighty things for me. These unassuming people, easily ignored, the kind of people that you wouldn't make eye contact with if you were walking along the plaza this Christmas season. It was these people who were the recipients of the mercy of God. Then there are the shepherds. Some of the most beautiful pictures in the Bible are of shepherds caring for the sheep who represent God's people. And some of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament held the occupation of shepherd at one point in their life. Moses comes to mind. David comes to mind. But by the time the first century rolled around, by the time Luke 2 was happening, the public perception of the occupation of shepherd couldn't have been much lore. Rabbinic resources of the time characterized them as being dishonest and as being thieving, leading their herds, for instance, into other people's lands, pilfering their crops and their pasture. Their general lack of supervision led many to conclude that they were stealing from their owners, essentially saying, oh, I'm sorry, uh, that sheep was taken by a predator, but instead they were taking it and selling it to others. So as a result, folks were warned not to buy from shepherds on the assumption that what you were buying was stolen. They were legally prohibited from holding judicial office or even as serving as a reliable witness in court. A Jewish commentary at the time on Psalm 23, the beautiful, the Lord is my shepherd passage, said that shepherd holders are, or shepherds are the holders of a despicable occupation. And this inglorious reputation was even more pronounced if you were a hireling shepherd. Someone who was just doing it to have a job, seasonal work, as it were, as the shepherds taking the night watch outside of a backwater town called Bethlehem appear to be in Scripture. Christ himself alludes to the reputation of hireling shepherds in John chapter 10, where he said, A hired shepherd will see a wolf coming and leave the sheep. He will flee because he cares, Jesus says, nothing for the sheep. So take a look at those shepherd figures in your nativity set again. They aren't David's shepherds making sheep to lie down in green pastures. 
and being led beside still waters. They are instead not unlike the kinds of folks who have I'm hungry and cold signs at intersections around the town that you will do everything to not make eye contact with. They had the kind of of reputation that we might assign to lifelong welfare recipients or people who are here illegally. Just in, in our minds, nothing good can come from that. So if you reread Luke chapter 2, you're being told that hoodlums were keeping watch over the flocks by night outside of, of Bethlehem. And And don't miss this, God's glory appears to them. If you just step back and think, if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, about the times when God's glory appears, it only appears to superstars, Moses, Isaiah, Abraham, if you want to talk about one of his visitations as experiencing the glory of God, or in the designated place, the tabernacle in the wilderness at the end of the book of Exodus, the temple of of Solomon. In other words, only the best of the best in the best of the best places get to experience the glory of God. And so you have these hoodlums, these vagrants, these nobodies in the fields, maybe completely untrustworthy, and God says, you know, I'm going to let them know first. And his glory appears to them. Part of what no eye had seen, nor ear heard, no heart of man conceived, is that God's mercy would be not just poured out, but targeted, targeted on the unassuming people of the world. The people that most of us wouldn't give a second thought to, people that we would completely ignore. And the reason I'm sharing all of this with you is because... God is up to something with all of this. It's it's not that these kinds of people received this kind of blessing because they just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I believe that they are meant to show all of us, every one of us, modern people today, that the situation that their earthly circumstances depict is the same circumstance that we all find ourselves in because of sin. And the only way any of us can experience the mercy of God is to embrace that kind of identity. All of us are just as impoverished All of us are just as as despicable as the, the people, not characters, real people that we see on the pages of Scripture in Luke chapter 2. We may be clean. We don't smell. We're able to wash ourselves. We have clean clothes, in fact, We have closets full of clean clothes. Our bellies are full. Our refrigerators are full. Our freezers are full. Our houses are warm in the winter, and they are cool in the summer. But spiritually, 
spiritually were the kinds of people that you would think a holy God wouldn't make eye contact with. And when we know that, God with his mercy targets us and says, because you understand the the situation in which you find yourself because of your sin, you can experience my mercy. Most of us think that the pathway to the mercy of God is through, uh, you know, morality or it is through religious piety or it is through civic service. We try to clothe ourselves with the righteousness that would make us worthy to God with those things. But what we have to do is we have to say, God, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I don't deserve a second glance from you. I am, I'm from a, a rock orbiting the sun that you ought not to care about at all in a universe filled of glorious sights. But if, if you would show me your mercy, if you would give me your son, then my life would have meaning and hope. So what Luke 2 does for us is show us the circumstances by which we experience the mercy of God. All of us need God's mercy. All of us are incapable of gaining his favor. And Christmas reminds us that God didn't leave us in that hopelessness, but pursued us in the man, Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together.